0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Johanna Newman about her new book, "Gilded Suffragists: The New York Socialites Who Fought for Women's Right to Vote." Johanna, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Mark.
0: I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself.
1: Well, I'm a former journalist. I had a lovely and long career uh, in newspaper journalism, covering mostly um, politics in Washington D.C. I covered the White House and Congress and the State Department and even cultural institutions like the Smithsonian for newspapers um, that included USA Today and the Los Angeles Times. And when the LA Times closed its Washington bureau in uh, 2008, I was really sent into a long period of introspection about who I was and what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. One thing I knew for sure is that I wasn't done, and the other uh, was that I had always had a, a longing to explore issues in greater depth than journalism allowed. So after about a year and a half of freelancing and trying on other things, I went back to the university uh, to pursue a Ph.D. in history. Six years later, um, I got the. I, I am now a historian. Along the way, of course, I uh, was required to find and research and write a dissertation. And um, I started looking at the history of women, about which I knew very little. Um, and I... Was looking particularly about women's suffrage and I, I was drawn at first to the 19th century suffrage movement. I was particularly shocked on learning and it, it's, you know, it's an embarrassment to admit that I didn't know, but I had no idea that the movement had split after the Civil War between suffragists who wanted to stand with black Men as they fought for the right to vote, which they eventually got in the 15th Amendment, and those who fought against black enfranchisement if it didn't also include women. And the ones who fought against the 15th Amendment included such stellar matriarchs as Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And I was just astounded by the fact and also by the historiography. Um, there were several scholars who had argued that this split um, into an autonomous organization to fight just for women's rights, not for women's rights, along with black rights, this sort of wrenching apart of the coalition that had fought against slavery was really important and critical in the development of women. Um, they argued that the the schism gave women an autonomous branch of their own, and it was really an important thing to do. I felt that it had set the movement back for quite a long ways. And I set out to prove that. That was going to be my dissertation. And after a while, it was kind of like trying to prove a counterfactual. How do you prove that a rivalry between two organizations has defeated a suffrage amendment in California or Kansas? How can you tease apart the various factors and prove it? And more than that, I found that it was such a dark and depressing subject <laughs> that I decided I, I I didn't want to spend three years of my life with that topic. And so I started thinking about what actually had won suffrage. How did they finally win? After all, it was 72 years from Seneca Falls in 1848, when Elizabeth Cady Stanton first proposed that women in this country should get the right to vote. The idea was so radical and so controversial at the time that her co-sponsor, Lucretia Mott, told her, Lizzie, they will make us Ridiculous. Uh, Lucretia Mott, I should have said, was a Quaker, and so she used that formulation. Stanton's husband, Henry, who was a state legislator in New York, was so upset, so sure that it would rebound poorly on his political career, that he boycotted the meeting. But at Seneca Falls, one African-American orator, Frederick Douglass, stood up for her, and made a persuasive case that women should vote, and the plank was passed at that conference. But it is 72 years from Seneca Falls in 1848 to the ratification of the 19th Amendment in 1920. And so I started thinking about what did win finally? How did they finally win? And that is how I happened on the topic of my book.
0: Your book focuses upon the role that a particular group of women played in pushing for uh, women's uh, the women's right to vote. But you begin by situating it within the context of new york society in the gilded age i was wondering if you could explain a bit about that society and the changes that it was going through during the late 19th century because as you uh, demonstrate in your book it really is key to understanding these women and a lot of their motivations
1: i agree and let me just say what drew me to these particular women was that I kept reading, once I made the decision to look toward the 1910s to see what had finally worked, I started reading a lot of newspaper accounts of suffrage events, suffrage controversies, suffrage pushback, anything I could find of a contemporary nature. And I started noticing the these women who seem to be very elite um, popping up in stories about politics. And it surprised me. Um, and so I just started digging there. I, I found more and more names of what I call gilded suffragists. And as I explored their histories, I realized that they represented a generational Change. We had gone from the robber barons of enormous wealth, the sort of the capitalists who, (laughs) depending on your view, either built or pilfered off of the building of the country, the railroad magnets, the oil industry, Um, these people who had fortunes so large, unimaginable size, and the, they're the first generation of new money and they upend New York high society in some interesting ways one is new money supplants old money the old Knickerbocker families that had wealth but also valued social standing the people for whom social prestige was as important as their financial health. Um, and and these new, they're sort of, I suppose Jay Gould is the exemplar of the more crass, um, uncouth, new money people who had no sense of manners um the commodore Commodore um, Vanderbilt was said to attend fancy dinner parties and then wipe his mouth after dinner on the tablecloth. Um, they They didn't care about the niceties um, and then they married and they raised children, and then they had grandchildren. And some of these women, by the second and the third generation, um, they have aspirations beyond the new money that they are inheriting. They want to matter in society. And for them, this is... um, (laughs) Not all of them do, mind you. I mean, I have profiled... For the book, I built a database and I found more than 200 of these women... And I just want to say one thing. It took me six months to build that database because a lot of those women were hidden behind the moniker of Mrs. Somebody Else. That was the way in those days. Even in newspaper coverage, you were Mrs. Somebody Else. And when I set out to find out everything I could about them, to find out what clubs they went to, what parties they belonged to, what social clubs and reform efforts they belonged to, what churches they went to. I had to find out their names. And sometimes it took me a whole day just looking through census records and birth records and newspaper clips about weddings to discern their first names. And But I just want to say that these 200 women that I found may not have been the majority. I mean, there were an awful lot of descendants of new money who were just fine with keeping it and doing nothing more with it. But the women I profile here had a sense of destiny about them. And it's good for them that they did because otherwise they would have been consigned to irrelevancy. By the 1920s, you're in the jazz age. And to be the wife or the daughter of incredible Gilded Age wealth is no longer even newsworthy or noteworthy. It's no longer a celebrity that newspapers will cover. Now there are sports people and radio people and boxing ring stars. So these women had a sense of the temper of their times and the sweep of history. And they were also, New York at the turn of the century was swirling with change. There was experimentation um in art and literature and politics. People in Greenwich Village were debating um, socialism and birth control and free love and all manner of institutions came in for review. And there was also, we were then at the height of the progressive era. And so you have these broad coalitions for change. Great efforts are underway to change municipal governance from political bosses um, to, you know, quality government. There are reform efforts to improve the quality of the immigrants in their housing and their working conditions, immigrants who have been streaming into the city in record numbers. I think by the turn of the century, one third of all New Yorkers are foreign born. So there is a, a sense of modernity, and they want to be a part of it.
0: That's one of the themes that uh, I think comes across, not just in terms of their quest for suffrage, but their quest for their own identity. You describe early in the book this uh, the Colony Club, and it I I, I thought it was a very interesting uh, description of this effort to establish themselves as not just Mrs. Uh, Belmont or Mrs. Uh, Vanderbilt, but instead as their own person who has their own space, who has their own uh, outlet for, in, in, in the case of the club, social activities, but how that also that impulse for that own self-identity was, uh, could also be seen in that growing appreciation for the value of having the ballot.
1: I quite agree. I don't think, you know, I, I when I was researching the book, I began to have this sense that it would open in Newport, Rhode Island, where most of them summered in their quote unquote cottages, the vast, uh, sumptuous mansions that are still preserved there by the Newport Preservation Society, along Bellevue Drive Bellevue Avenue. But um, there, I, I open the book there because in August of 1902, five women of undisputed um, social and economic elite status met to decide how to create a club of their own in the city. This is not a political club that they wanted to open in New York City. This was to mimic the great men's clubs of New York and London, where a man could go to escape the rough noises of the city and relax in cushy brown leather chairs and um, have a port or a drink of some kind with people of like mind to escape the smells and the sights and the sounds of the city. And I think you're right, Mark. I think what happens in that chapter and throughout that book is that they discover, and of course this is very controversial, that they should even want a social club, that men are horrified that they would not find the home sufficient And there are great rumblings in the newspapers about how this is the death knell of the home and about how um, I think one former president envies against it, that it is going to unleash great gender imbalances, disrupt the home, and so forth. But they persist and they create this club, and it turns out to be a venue, a site for a discussion of suffrage, among other issues. But the idea is that they begin to look at, do they have more influence as moral figures influencing politics and men um, from afar or in the bedroom? Or do they have more influence as their own political actors would it behoove them to get the vote for themselves and this debate goes on within the colony club for some years um and it um and i just thought it, it was it was quite captivating of the tensions and the pressures one example is that florence haram Herrim, jaffrey Harriman, who founded the first one who came up with the idea for a club in the city She was called Daisy by her friends. Um, Daisy Harriman once went to a suffrage event. And of course, being the president of the now named Colony Club, she was seated on the podium. And it was written up in the paper. And there was great unhappiness at the Colony Club from the members who were not interested in suffrage and certainly not in favor of them. And one of them came up to her afterwards and said that there was great antagonism toward her because she had done that and that there was an effort afoot to get her to resign. She did not resign. She served for quite a long time as president of the Colony Club. And she went on, by the way, to a long career in democratic politics, um, having served as FDR's ambassador to Norway during the Nazi invasion. But she said that after that experience, she never again went to another suffrage event as long as she was president. She decided to maintain a neutrality because of her position. So it demonstrates the fervence of the debate within the walls of that building.
0: That story also demonstrates another part of your uh, book, though, that you talk about, which gets to the role that many of these women assumed within the suffrage movement. You describe how these women are emerging at a time when their social class is becoming the subject of such public attention. You're starting to see people writing about it in newspapers, and as you describe one of the uh, assets that these uh, women bring to the suffrage movement is a is is a savviness about the mass media at the time, uh, their uh, their awareness of, of how to get attention in this uh, environment where you have, as you describe in New York City alone, nearly thirty newspapers, and and uh, all of which you know, pr- can provide a platform, and and for which these women. Much in the way that some celebrities do today, you know, use their status to draw attention to this issue.
1: This was the dawn of the celebrity of celebrity journalism. The 1880s is when celebrities really started being covered. Newspapers sort of perked up to the possibility that the wealthy would make news, and the wealthy, especially people like Alva Vanderbilt Belmont learned how to exploit this. Um, So, yes, they were. And the other thing is that they were, that I didn't appreciate until I listened to the oral history of a woman who had served as the secretary, one of the ladies I profile in her, in in the book. Um, The woman she served was Catherine Dewar Mackey, And her name was Ethel. Ethel was Mackie's secretary, and she served her in suffrage and in running this huge estate out on Roslyn, Long Island, 628 acres, um, stables, car garages, all manner of staff. And And when I heard Ethel talking about how much work there was to do, I realized that Mackie was running a business. She was an executive running a business. And so when she decided to go in for suffrage, she didn't want to just join one of the existing organizations. She wanted to run her own. So I agree with you. The fact that they were celebrities that they came up in an age when their names were in the papers a lot, when they learned how to play the press a little bit, um, and also the fact that they knew how to run things, um, both of those things, I think, advantaged them in the fight to come.
0: Catherine uh, Mackay is one of my favorite characters in your book because, as you describe, she, uh, excuse me, Mackie, uh, is that she's not just. An activist, but she also is that very unusual figure in Gilded Age America. She is an actual office holder.
1: This was a shock to find out that she had run before, years before she contemplated whether women should have the vote. She ran for the school board in Rosalind, Virginia, where they had this great palatial estate that Stanford White had built. And this is because in 1880, um, New York State had allowed women to vote and serve in school board elections. The thinking was that women were mothers and had um, thoughts about the education of their children and that those should be represented. I should pause here to say that one of the things I learned along this Research route was that, as happens with social change often in this country, the states serve as incubators for social change. And so that some states enfranchise women long before 1920. And I think, I'm trying to remember the numbers, but I think by 1916, there are seven or eight states that have full suffrage for women. But many more of them have this school suffrage or municipal suffrage in which women are allowed a political voice on a local level. At any rate, Mackie, who had two children um, when she first ran for the school board, and she later had a third child, not only ran, but she won she didn't depart from her sort of ladylike approach to life. She was always very courteous and decorous. Um, but she won against a man who belittled her, said if she were elected, it would be the becoming of petticoat rule, that women would rule everything. She, she. The thing is, what's not, I mean, it's interesting that she won. What's more interesting is that she invited him to run the following year for an open seat. And she worked for him. And this gave her an ally on the board for the reforms that she wanted to make, which largely entailed um, eliminating some of the corporal punishments that schools um, Regularly indulged in. And this made her very popular all around. So I, not only <laughs> did she run for office, she was a pretty savvy politician. Uh, but she got credit for none of this because she was gorgeous and gilded. I mean, she was incredibly beautiful and a, a fabulously wealthy. Um, And when she put her hat in for suffrage, it electrified the movement. People were so excited that someone of her standing would join the movement, which by then had a reputation as in the doldrums. People like Harriet Stanton Blatch, who was the youngest daughter of Elizabeth Cady Stanton, came back from... Europe, where she had been living in England for 20 years, to find the movement that her mother had started was in a deep rut, that they were just preaching to the choir. They weren't winning any new converts. And when Harriet Stanton Blatch heard that Mackey was interested, she understood that change was afoot, that something new would happen. And another descendant, uh, Lucy Stone's daughter, Alice Blackwell, was so excited because she had heard stories from her mother of empty rooms and unattended lectures and banging her head against the wall trying to get people to care about suffrage. But because she was a celebrity, because she was glamorous and... um And articulate, uh, Mackey electrified attention and her secretary, Ethel, said that she was very savvy about the media and that the press may have come to cover Mrs. Mackey's gowns or her dress or her decor, but they never left without a statement about women's right to vote.
0: One of the things you don't shy away from in your book are the some of the personality conflicts that, while you might have you are talking about a group of women who agreed on the need for the ballot, the means of getting there was oftentimes uh, a, a source of some controversy, and it, 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 it's just one aspect of these controversies that you address, that these women, even with their stature in society, as you've already referenced, were the subject of belittlement. There were issues raised about questions of this impact upon masculinity. And it shows how, even with the prestige that they that they brought to the movement, that it was not necessarily smooth sailing once they uh, joined up.
1: Well, first, on, on the first point, the differences between them, those were quite dramatic um, and mirrored the larger suffrage movement, which is to say basically mainstream versus moderate. Mackey was the mainstream suffragist who believed in appealing to reason um, and who believed that one needn't import the the radical or militant or whatever adjective you wish to use tactics of the British activists to this country because women here could win through reason. And also believe that the vote was necessary because women were softer and more maternal and that their influence would be good to have Um, in the political world. People like Alva Belmont were more, well, I suppose you could say they were angrier. Um, And they, Alva was only too happy to talk militant, even if she never acted it out, um, and felt women should have the right to vote, period without reference to what influence they might have. And she used this, it it was a more cynical view of her power. She understood politics the way men played it. I mean, there was a famous, to me, (laughs) I'm trying to make it famous, a race in which a state senator was up for re-election. And she was one of the people working against him because he was a no vote for suffrage whenever it came up in the state legislature. And she, she did something that was totally unexpected. She sent suffrage activists out into the streets carrying signs, carrying literature, saying we need to defeat this man because of his stand on suffrage. She was using the tactics even though she couldn't vote she was campaigning as if she could and he was defeated Um, so uh, there were these different approaches that mirrored the larger movement the effect on men is um, to me a sort of delicious aspect of the issue I I devote a whole chapter to them I find them an uh, an um, unusually brave class of people the men who supported them were derided by the newspapers who called them mere men because they were suggesting that to the women's suffrage movement these were mere men Um, but I think they were very important actually in normalizing and diffusing the issue to to taking the fangs out of what was once a very controversial idea and making it seem acceptable. Um, And I think of it in much the same way as we have witnessed the coming of gay rights um, or the gay marriage, marriage equality, um, where people took, took time for people to accustom Themselves to this idea that sort of upset understandings of gender, and then they did, um, and so and I think the men were instrumental in um, in aiding that process. Um, there was a Men's League for Women's Suffrage. They marched with the women in parades. They got far more cheering and hostility than the women. Um and for the most part they took it well. They were reformers. They were progressives first and then second.
0: One of the things you you do in that chapter is you tie it to this big event, which was the sinking of the Titanic. And here you had a uh a, 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 a you know a Worldwide tragedy in in, in some respects, uh, in terms of it, the attention it received, and it was characterized by a lot of scenes of men such as uh, uh, John Astor IV, who uh, you know allowed who who escorted his wife and uh, to to the boat, uh, who uh, and then who proceeded to get back on the Titanic because was women and children first. And you describe how the the, the class element of that. And how it played into this debate about how, for you know, you had this example of women being of the class who are being escorted to rescue as, as you know, in in the traditional image of women being saved, and this argument that some uh, wags then come up with, which is that, well, if women believe in equality, then why do we have women and children first?
1: This was a huge issue at the time. Um, The. You know the the wags, as you put it, the the letters to the editor columns uh, swelled with comments from men saying, um, "How dare you? How dare you ask for the vote when you ask us to save you? We have demonstrated that we will die to save you. How can you turn around?" And and there were people inside the women's movement who thought the women should cancel that year's suffrage parade um, because it was too close in time that it was too controversial uh, because of the sinking of the titanic no it was a it was a huge event and it forced women i think to sort of think through what they were asking for and Um, And also maybe for men to think through uh, women and children first. It was was a very culturally calamitous event. Um, And it did, the women went ahead with the parade that year. Men marched with them that year. Um, But I I opened the chapter there because I thought it was, um, it, it was deep with meaning for the movement. How can you ask for the vote if you expect men to die so that you, you can live? Um, it, it was just a question hanging over the movement.
0: And that, of course, is a question that comes up again uh, in 1917. But by that point, you have uh, women who are very deeply engaged in the campaign to gain women the right to vote in New York State. And this goes back to what you were talking about just a couple of minutes ago with the campaign to defeat the New York State senator. They weren't just thinking nationally. As you were describing earlier, they were focused upon the, their state and what they could do within their state. And I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit on that pre-war uh, campaign to win women the suffrage in New York State and their role within it. You mean in
1: 1915 or 1917?
0: In 1915.
1: Yeah, in 1915, they were supposed to win in New York. Everyone thought they were going to win. There was a great deal of momentum toward it. Um, I've never read a good analysis of why they didn't. Um, But I know this was a period when they... Began to experiment with tactics. Um, you might call it a PR book. You know, they just they borrowed every tactic you could think of for winning public favor. Um, advertising had just come into its own. There was a sense of public relations as kind of a science. Um, people were fascinated with it, and so these women of suffrage of all stripes, the mainstream and the militants, were very attuned to how to win public um, support. And so they tried, there were all kinds of, you might say, ludicrous attempts. I mean, they had, there was a baseball game at the polo grounds, um, suffrage day at the polo grounds. There was Um, There were flyers dropped from airplanes. There were cold calls made to men in the middle of the day asking for their vote. Um, I, I, you know, I I think it was um, an introduction into the public square for women who maybe hadn't been raised that way. The, The analysis of the vote in 1915 in New York suggests that the immigrants... Uh, the male immigrants voted uh, in sufficient numbers against it to defeat it, um, and it has some important effects on the movement. Certain key figures leave the movement after that. Uh, Harriet Stanton Blatch is just despondent. She had counted on it going through. Um, she everybody expected it to win. Um, and Anna Howard Shaw who's chairman who's president of the National American Women's Suffrage Movement, she um moves on and Carrie um Carrie Chapman Catt, who had been running the New York campaign, comes back to run the mainstream um main suffrage movement with two million members. Um so there it it leaves an imprint, but it's um it's just a bump on the road.
0: It definitely is in retrospect because little did they know in two years they would, they would succeed in a, in a new referendum. And you really give a lot of credit there to the First World War and how the war affects the debate, even though it's a very perilous uh, event, politically speaking, for the suffrage movement.
1: I found the war a fascinating uh, element to the story. First, because, as you say, it forced the suffrage movement to think about how to position itself at a time of war, and again, provoked some serious schisms within. So when there is war fever, there's a temper, there's sort of a jingoistic spirit of joining the fight, um, women in the movement have to make a decision between, many of them are peace activists. Um, people like Carrie Chapman are, are was a founder of the, the Peace Party. They, they think their role as women voters is going to be to end wars. And um, so there's an immediate split between those who think the way to win suffrage is to – there are some who drop their peace activism and throw their efforts into war relief on grounds that this will endear them to the electorate. And keep in mind, the electorate at this time is all men. So they are trying to appeal to men. We stand with you as you go off to war. And this comes down in some poignant sense to one person, Jeanette Rankin, who is sworn in as the first woman member of Congress. The very first vote this woman has to cast is whether to support Woodrow Wilson's declaration of war. Her vote doesn't matter because it's going to pass overwhelmingly, and everyone knows that. And yet she is a person of conscience who has been tormented with this issue. She is deluged from all sides. Within suffrage, she is pounded by people, many who think she should support the war precisely because it will help women get the vote and others who are just as passionate urging her to stay with her principles and vote against war even if she's one of the few and this she does that was the, so
0: if i may, yeah. that that was the part that i found so fascinating was how for so many women who were lobbying her they were lobbying her not just in terms of as you put it a vote that that you know that didn't mean that wasn't critical to the passage of the bill, but how it became for many of them a, a a defining point in terms of the whole suffrage argument that, that she was going to represent whether women could bear the, the responsibilities of, of, of political participation.
1: Exactly. And whether women who weren't at that time in the military, whether whether it was fair to give the vote to someone who wasn't willing to defend the country. Um, And, of course, the women countered that there are other ways to serve than picking up a rifle. But it was definitely a point of great conscience, a a, a great historic moment, um, an epic clash of principle. And um, the other point I make there in that chapter is that most people say that women won the vote, not just in this country but in others, because in World War one they did do war service, and men felt that they had earned it. Um, I believe that they won the vote because in the process of navigating these sort of wrenching choices, women matured as political actors. They came into their own, um, and they knew how to work the system to get what they needed. You know, Teddy Roosevelt had said for years um, that he found this whole issue of women's suffrage quite boring, and he, he was kind of, indifferent to it um and he just sort of tried to blow it off and he just kept saying well women will get the vote when they want it and and i think by that he meant when enough women want the vote and have persuaded the men around them that they know how to use it they'll get it and in a way he was right because that's what happened
0: Hmm. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. but Before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
1: Well, I'm still fascinated by suffrage. So the next book, I hope, um, will be in that same zone. It's called, tentatively, The Protester and the President. It's about Alice Paul, the militant wing of the suffrage movement who led pickets in front of Woodrow Wilson's White House, the first protest there in American history Um, and the president um, who at first tried to ignore them tried to be chivalrous to them invited them in from Coco and it's the forces of, I want to look at the question of social change and whether it's the mainstream people or the militant people who forward progress? Is it the people who lick envelopes in our formulation or or, you know, send petitions to Congress, lobby through the halls of legislatures, um, work the constituencies, press their case through public opinion venues, Or is it the people who are protesting in the streets and who maybe push us beyond our comfort zone? Who is it that makes social change? Or, and I'm open to this possibility, is it the case that both sides are needed? That every movement for social change has inside players who know how to talk the language of the political system and rock throwers outside the system who are disrupting and do and is that how progress happens so i want to examine that through the eyes of alice paul and woodrow wilson who did not much like each other
0: well i look for i look forward to reading the uh what answer you come up with there (laughs) uh johanna newman thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us i hope you have a wonderful day
1: Thank you very much, Mark, and thank you to your audience.